Welcome to episode number 19 of Talking Mopars. This episode is the latest installment of High Performance Heritage. This time around, we take a look back at 1968 and the factory lightweights. That's right, folks. We're talking the 1968 Super Stock Hemi Darts and Barracudas. We're also talking Project Car of the Week, High Performance Parts, Listener Stories, and we've got our first listener voicemail. So without further ado, if you are a Mopar enthusiast, then you are in the right place. Don't go anywhere. You're tuned into the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth, and I am your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter, and this is Talking Mopars. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Welcome to Talking Mopars. This episode of the show is an installment of High Performance Heritage. On these special editions, we shine the spotlight on a car, person, or event that had a lasting impact on the heritage of Mopar. So, we'll close the show out talking High Performance Heritage, which this week focuses on the 1968 Superstock Hemi Darts and Barracudas. But before that, we'll cover the usual suspects. And right now, we'll get things going with a little small talk. Anytime you put yourself out there on the internet, whether it be by trying to sell a car online, or making YouTube videos, or even podcasting, you're bound to be hated or hated on by somebody. It's inevitable. I knew that this podcast was going to stir up the haters, but to my surprise, they've stayed mostly quiet until this week. So if you listen to the show on the Apple Podcasts app, you can rate and review the show. Most of my reviews have been awesome and frankly, quite flattering. Let me just say that I appreciate all of you who have taken a moment to rate and review the show, either good or bad. So thank you to all the great listeners who have left me ratings and reviews. Yes, I even thank those who left a bad review, and so far, it's only been one person who actually took the time to write me a bad one. Why on earth would I thank that individual? Well, aside from calling the show a trash podcast, I take criticism very seriously because I created the show for Mopar enthusiasts. So when a Mopar enthusiast tells me where I'm going wrong on the show, I listen. And sure, I may have to ignore the insults and whatnot, but I always try to mine whatever good I can, even from a scathing review. This particular review was interesting and, you know, I thought about it a lot and I debated on whether or not I should even talk about it on the show. And I ultimately decided that it would be a good thing to talk about it and perhaps I could find a way to encourage people to leave me more reviews, either positive or negative. Without going into too much detail, the review basically stated that I spend too much time on all the regular weekly segments of the show, and I don't spend enough time on the actual history of Mopar. I feel that this review could have been articulated in a better way. I get the reviewer's point. You want more Mopar history. I get it. Me too. That's the beauty of this show. We have as many episodes as it takes to cover it all. I do hope that that reviewer keeps listening, and... I do actually appreciate the fact that they gave me something from the bad review other than a bruised ego. And as far as the other segments of the show that the reviewers spoke badly of, let this be known. They will not be changing. But here's what's going to happen. I'm going to continue all the weekly segments as usual, business as usual, but I will work on providing more on the history of Mopar and hopefully in enough depth that keeps you all entertained and doesn't put you to sleep. Through my research of podcasting, I've learned that there is no such thing as too long or too short of a podcast, but there is a such thing as too boring, and that's why I limit the length of the show and 
generally try to keep things short and sweet, but I'm going to try to sweeten the pot a little bit more for you guys as the show progresses. I hope you're still with me. And if so, good. I'm glad. Stick around. Things are only going to get better from here. But it does pain me to know that I've somehow let a fellow Mopar enthusiast down because that's not what I want to do with the show. I want it to be known that this show is an ongoing work in progress. And with your help, it will remain the best Mopar podcast of all time and hold that crown, hopefully forever. So here's what I ask of you. All I ask is for your participation in the show. How can you participate? It's very easy, folks. There are two easy ways you can participate today. The first way is by emailing me, chris at talkingmopars.com. Email is a great way to reach me. And the second way is by leaving me a message on my voicemail. The number is 209-28-MOPAR. You can send me whatever kind of message you want. You want to correct me? You can. You want to tell me your story? You can. You want to send me your story for me to share on the show? You can. Along with comments, questions, concerns, criticisms, and anything else that comes to mind. Your voicemails will be shared on the show, and so will any Mopar stories that you send in for listener stories. And you know what? I'll also share any emails that I think would be good for the show. The point is, you're not the only one listening here. I'm listening too. I listen to what you guys say. And hey, if you can, rate and review the show. Just please do it in a constructive way. That way, we can make the adjustments necessary to keep this show going strong. But before we really dive into this episode, there's one more thing I'd like to address. The other day, I got a message from my friend Bud Klepp of Cartech Books, Scat Pack Club, and DodgeGarage.com fame. What's up, Bud? He actually reached out to me to correct an error that I made on an episode of this show, which I greatly appreciate and I greatly respect the way that he approached me about the mistake. So thank you for that, Bud. What was the mistake? On episode number 17, I mentioned that in 2005, one of the cars available with a Hemi was a Dodge Charger. In all actuality, there were no 2005 model year chargers, only 2006 model year chargers, but they were introduced in 2005. So there you go, folks. The wrongs have been righted. And Bud, thanks for correcting me. And for all of you listening, if you ever hear me make a slip up on the show, you know, let me know. I'll get it corrected. And I've said it before, I am not an expert. I just know a little bit about a lot. So, you know, sometimes I'll slip and I'll stumble and, you know, I may say something that's wrong. And that's okay. You can correct me. I won't take offense to it as long as you're not a jerk about it. <laughs> okay. Bud was really respectful about it. And I appreciate that. Bud, I appreciate you, sir. Thank you very much. And now that the wrongs have been righted, let's get this show on the road. This week's project car of the week is the 1969 Dodge Super B that was posted on the Mopar Hunter Facebook page on March 12th at 12 p.m. Let's check out the ad. 1969 Coronet Super B, a.k.a. the Killer B, $6,500. This car is in need of a full restoration. Serious inquiries only, comes with 413 block, 4-speed trans, and everything you see in pictures. Please make all calls after 5 p.m. If there's no answer, leave message and we will return your call. So in the sidebar, they list the condition as a salvage. They say that the title status is clean. And then all the other basic information that you already know. Paint color is blue. I want you to imagine a 1969 Super B that is B5 blue with a white tail stripe, a white vinyl bench seat interior, and a four-speed transmission. The car's beautiful, okay? Now I want you to imagine that car neglected for about 30 years, okay? <laughs> That's what this car looks like. This car is 
man, it's rough. Okay. It is. I mean, I don't think there is a clean panel on this car and I would almost, I'd be afraid to look underneath it. It's got surface rust all over the place. The floor pans look like they need help. There's no carpet. The seats are there, but they need to be redone. You can see through the seat. <laughs> like that's how bad the seat is. You can actually see through the seat, you know, see the spring. So like if you put this in the car, you could look down in between your legs and see the floor pan. That's how bad this car is. It's nuts. It's got some Magnum 500 wheels. Um, I don't know if it's two or three of them, but one of them is a steel wheel. So, I mean, this car, let's just call it what it is. It is a complete and utter project car. That all being said, it's $6,500. Now, when it comes to B body cars, like Super Bs, okay? If it was just a Coronet, I'd say, all right, you know, maybe it would make a good parts car, but this is a 69 Super B in B5 blue with a white tail stripe and white vinyl bench interior. This thing has the potential to be a very nice car. Now, is it worth going through the restoration? You know, it's not an A12 car. It's lacking the original engine and transmission. You know, there's a lot of factors in the potential this car has to be a good buying decision. But anytime I see a higher end B body or E body or A body for under $10,000, even if it is a total project, I always consider it because, you know, these cars are hard to find, folks. You can find Coronets, but it's harder to find the Super Bs for obvious reasons. And this one, $6,500, it needs a total restoration. But I think that you know, if you work the numbers a little bit and you get this thing a little bit lower, let's just say that everything isn't necessarily rotted out completely. And this car could potentially have an engine and transmission thrown in it. And then, you know, all the normal things that we talk about here on Project Car of the Week, you know, brakes, safety equipment, all that stuff. Let's say that the drivetrain and suspension is good. All the electronics work. Windshield wipers work. Let's say heater works. Let's say that if we threw all that stuff on and it would all work, would this be a cool car to drive around? Now, you guys know me by now. <laughs> I would drive a complete rot box as long as it was safe. So especially something cool like a Charger, a Super B, you know, you know, even the lower end cars. I'm an equal opportunity Mopar guy, okay? So yes, I think this would be to see this car at like three or four grand. But, you know, that's that's me being a low baller and you know, my philosophy is I'd rather be a low baller than a no baller. You know what I mean? So I think this would be a really cool ratty muscle car. I mean, there's patinaed and there's rotten. This thing like toes that line pretty close. It's right in the middle. There's just something about it that speaks to me. I say that all the time. This car has the potential to be very cool. Here's how I envision it. I say and here we go again, saying the same thing over and over again. I know some of you are thinking, God, this guy's like a broken record, but I would probably get this car to running and driving condition with a third generation Hemi because I just think the new school combined with the rotted, ratty muscle car look, I think that's cool. That's like, I've been into that lately. I don't know why. I like patinaed muscle cars, muscle cars that have, you know, quote unquote barn finds, you know, these types of cars that, are in derelict condition. I think they're awesome when they have modern drivetrains. So that's what I would do with it. Uh, 6,500 bucks, you know, mm, I say go for it. 
I say go in there with four grand cash, lay it on the table. And, you know, that's this is what I would do. You may be thinking I'm crazy. I'm sure a lot of you are like, this guy's nuts. But maybe you like hearing me and my crazy ideas. <laughs> but the other the other thing you could do with this thing is, you know, forego the modern drivetrain and go old school with it. Screw it. You know what I mean? I think this thing would also be cool if it had hijackers in the back and deep dish craggers. You could get like a real street machine vibe going. A ratty street machine is always cool to me. So, I mean, you could go a couple different ways with this thing. Or if your wallet is fat, and I do mean fat, you could turn this thing into a beautiful car. I personally, I think the combination of B5 blue and white is beautiful. Every time I see one of those cars, uh, most Mopars that I see with white interior, I, I don't know, there's just something about it where I'm just like, oh my God, I don't even want to sit in it. You know, they're just so clean. But I think this would be cool if the interior was restored and it ran and drove and was safe, but retained all the surface rust and all that other, you know, cosmetic stuff on the outside, on the exterior. I think it would be cool and I'd run it. I'd run the hell out of that thing. <laughs> but that's me. Um, what would you guys do with it? You know, is 6,500 too much? I, you know, this is kind of one of those cars where it's like, you know, you're kind of on the fence. At least I am. Because I'm looking at it in like $6,500. If I had $6,500 and I saw this car for sale, you know, and I had the means to do what I planned to it, would I buy it? Nine times out of ten, I'll say yes. If a car ends up on Project Car of the Week, chances are I would probably buy it. This Super B is no exception. I would definitely buy this car. I would obviously try to get it way cheaper. I'd probably chop them in half <laughs> and see what we could do there. But, you know, is it a killer B? I don't think so, not right now, but it has the potential to be a killer bee. And, you know, when I look at this car, I just, I envision it with that street machine rake. And I kind of like a third generation Hemi made it to an A833 four-speed. Again, that's me. I am curious, as always, what you guys think about the car. You know, on the comment thread for this post on my Facebook page, I actually saw a lot of positive comments on it, which is, you know, if you've been following the Mopar Hunter for any amount of time, you'll see that my page attracts muscle car experts, and they all know the values of these things. <laughs> Obviously, I'm being a little sarcastic. Everybody has an opinion. Some of them stink. Some of them are great. Some of them fall right in the middle. You know, this car, it got some love, which is surprising to me because of the condition it's in, but a lot of people were saying the same thing that I did, and that's a good price, and that you don't see them this cheap, and you know, that it has potential. And then there's a couple that are like, wow, that's way too much. You know, I'll give them a thousand bucks, which to me, a thousand bucks, that's laughable. Yes, I try to chop them in half at like three grand, but that's me. And I would not expect to pay three grand, but I'd like to try to lower that 6,500 a little bit. So all in all, I do think this is a good car. I think that it'll make someone a great project. And one thing that I see on the Mopar Hunter page a lot is comments about how much it would take to restore the car, how much money how many hours of labor, things like that. I don't think that way. You know, if I see a car that's too far gone, my first mission objective is to get it back on the road. I don't care what it looks like. A lot of guys, they don't want to drive a rust bucket. They want to drive a beautiful Mopar, and there's nothing wrong with that. I love beautiful Mopars, but I'm also, I'm an equal opportunity Mopar enthusiast. You've heard me say that before. And when I see a car like this, I just want to get it back on the road. because. I think this car driving down the road on a nice set of wheels and tires with the right stance and a healthy sound, 
I think a lot of people, I think this thing would turn heads. I think you could pull up in a Hellcat and you could pull up in this thing. And I guarantee at a stoplight, most people would be looking at the Super B. It attracts attention. If you look at the pictures of this car, it's just got a really cool look to it. Now, some people are like, really cool look? It looks like a POS. And I get it. I get it. But some people like me, you know, like that ratty look. This car is ratty to the nth degree. And I love it. So Project Car of the Week for this week, episode 19, is the Killer B. The 69 Super B for $6,500. <laughs> This is High Performance Parts, the segment of the show where we take a couple of minutes to highlight a Mopar from TV or movie history. This week's High Performance Part belongs to the 1970 Dodge Super B, driven by Edward Norton in Spike Lee's 2002 film 25th Hour, in which Ed Norton portrays drug dealer Monty Brogan. The film centers on the aftermath of Monty getting caught dealing drugs for the Russian mafia and his last 24 hours as a free man. Here's what I know about the B. It's unique in the fact that there was only one car used in the film, so this is the only one there were no other extras. Originally, it was a Coronet equipped with a 383 and a 4-speed, but it eventually underwent the Super B transformation to become the movie car discussed here today. When it was restored, it was painted bright yellow with a black bumblebee stripe and a black vinyl top. It rolls on Mopar rally wheels with Goodyear rubber. It has a black interior with a bench seat and the infamous Hurst pistol grip 4-speed. You'll also find a small autometer tack on the left side of the steering wheel. The original 383 was eventually ditched in favor of a 446 pack that's been slightly warmed over. It's got a comp cam in it, some headman headers, um, an upgraded ignition system, and some dress-up items like uh, Mopar Performance aluminum valve covers. It's also got a really cool March Performance all-inclusive serpentine belt drive system with aluminum pulleys. And it's also got a red top Optima battery, with all the grunt from the powerful 446 pack sent to a Dana 60 with four tens. This B is just a fun, fast, factory-appearing, cool movie car. It was actually sold at a 2018 Barrett-Jackson auction for $53,900, complete with signatures from Ed Norton and Spike Lee, and some other movie memorabilia, so that's pretty cool. The star of this week's edition of High Performance Parts belongs to the 1970 Dodge Coronet Super B tribute car, featured in the movie 25th Hour. This is Listener Stories, the weekly segment of the show where I share your stories that you send to me via email. I also have been advertising for the past few weeks my voicemail number, which is 209-28-MOPAR. So this week we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of reading stories that come to me via email, I actually got a voicemail from my friend Hemi Bill. Now, if you're not familiar with Hemi Bill, he's a cool dude and he's got some great stories. And if you want to read any of them, you can go to hemibill.com. There you'll find all sorts of fun stories and a bunch of content relating to his Mopars, of which he's had a lot of. Now, let's hear what Hemi Bill had to say. Hey, Chris, this is Hemi Bill calling. Hey, uh, I think it was uh, Podcast 17 you were talking about the car used in Tommy Boy, uh, the convertible. Um, I'm wondering, was that also the same car that was repainted and used at the end of Joe Dirt? Wondering if you got any info on that. Uh, let us know. Curious minds and all that. Hemi Bill out. Hey, Hemi Bill. Thanks for sending in your message. You're officially the first caller that I've had. So thank you for that. And in regards to your question, I always wondered the same thing. Because 
Rumor has it that David Spade's kind of a Mopar guy. Now, that's funny because in a lot of his movies, he says dumb things in relation to Mopars, which I don't know if that's just script writing or what, but let's just say I was an actor if I was reading some lines and I was a Mopar enthusiast and they were having me read something dumb that was untrue, I would definitely have to correct them. But I always had a suspicion that perhaps David Spade actually owned the car, but I later found out no. I had assumed that the one in Tommy Boy was his and that he eventually converted it to the orange black striped one that we see in Joe Dirt. You know, upon further investigation, I realized that other people were coming to the same conclusions that I was. And that's that there were some dead giveaways that, for one, it wasn't a real GTX, and two, it quite possibly could be the same car based on a couple of subtle hints. One, the tires and wheels. So both the Tommy Boy car and the Joe Dirt car had Krager SS wheels with Uniroyal tires. Now, that could be a coincidence. But then you start digging in a little deeper, and if you compare the Tommy Boy car to the Joe Dirt car, you realize that they have a lot of the same non-GTX features, even though they're claiming to be GTXs. So you have the gas cap, you have the 120 mile an hour speedometer, you have the column shift. So there are a few things that are consistent with both of them where you go, okay, maybe it is the same car. Now, I do believe it was the same car. I just think that it was repainted. And from what I understand and the research I've done, it actually is the same car. And everybody else that's even remotely a Mopar person comes to the same conclusions, and they even go even more in depth with it. So you can look that up online. Um, there's certain little hints to the car other than the ones that I mentioned, like little little things that a GTX should have that those cars both do not have. So we can safely assume that they are the same car, they were just repainted. And from what I understand, they're basically pretty popular Hollywood cars that are used quite a bit as extras. Now I say quite a bit and I really don't have any <laughs> I don't have any basis or factual information on that. So I don't know if they're actually used that much, but they are used. Now, why they went through the lengths of painting it and calling it a roadrunner in the movie, Joe Dirt, I don't know. It's ridiculous. I, I, <laughs> it cracks me up every time I hear something in a movie about Mopars that's completely wrong. And David Spade is guilty of it more than once. <laughs> but that's all right. I'd love to get David Spade on the show. I think that would be a fun interview. I really want to dig deep into his enthusiasm for Mopars, if he has one. Is it just a coincidence, or is he really a Mopar guy? I know that he bought a Hemi Daytona um, a few years ago for like 900 grand or something like that from one of the auctions. So, I mean, if you're spending that kind of coin, you gotta be a Mopar guy. So I'd be interested to talk to David Spade. So if anybody listening to this has a connection to David Spade, or, you know, tag him on Instagram or something, try, let's try to get him on this show. Let's get to the bottom of this. But Yes, Hemi Bill, I do believe it is the same car. I don't have any concrete evidence or concrete proof, but if you look on the internet, a lot of people have come to the same conclusion. And, you know, based on what they've said and what I've seen and what I know, I do, I do agree with what a lot of them have said. And that's that there's too many similarities between the two clones that, you know, suggest that they're the same car. So, you know, that's my answer to that. I do believe that the car specifically the 1967 GTX tribute car in Tommy Boy was the same car used in Joe Dirt.
that they posed as a roadrunner. How ridiculous is that? Thanks, Hemi Bill, for sending in your story. And for all you other listeners out there, Hemi Bill actually sent me a story, and then he sent me another story. And this guy, I know he's got stories, so I'm excited to hear what he's got to offer. And we're going to get into those stories in the next upcoming episodes. So thanks again, Hemi Bill. And to all of you listening, please continue to send in your stories. You can reach me via email, chris at talkingmopars.com, or you can reach me at 209-28-MOPAR. That was Listener Stories. Notice, this car is equipped with a 426 cubic inch engine and other special equipment. This car is intended for use in supervised acceleration trials and is not intended for highway or general purpose car use. Accordingly, this vehicle is sold as is, and the 12-month or 12,000-mile vehicle warranty coverage and 5-year or 50,000-mile powertrain warranty coverage does not apply to this vehicle. That was the message on the small yellow rectangular decals found on the glove box of two of the coolest Mopars to ever dominate the quarter mile that you could actually special order at your local Mopar peddler in 1968. What were the production codes for those little monsters? The darts were L023, or what I call LO23 because it rolls off the tongue easier, and the Barracudas, which were B029 or BO29. These weren't cars that were ever intended to be mass-produced. These cars were meant to be factory-built drag cars that were ready to run. Now, exactly how many of these cars were built? 80 darts and 70 barracudas. To put that into perspective, thousands of some of the rarest Mopars were made. There was thousands of Hemi cars, and there was thousands of, you know, sought-after cars in the Mopar realm, but yet the 1968 Superstock Hemi cars that we're talking about today, there was only 80 darts and 70 Barracudas produced. That's insane, okay? That makes them extremely rare. So the 1968 Hearst Superstock Hemi Dodge darts and Plymouth Barracudas were game changers. Mopar is notorious for cars like this throughout history. I mean, these purpose-built Hemi A-bodies were the predecessors to the Dodge Challenger SRT Demon after all. But for what purpose? To dominate the NHRA Superstock class in drag racing. Now that's cool, but what recipe did our pals at Chrysler cook up to create such beasts? Well, the first simple ingredients in the recipe stuck true to the high-performance formula of big engine plus light car equals go fast very quickly. (laughs) These little Superstock A-bodies did just that. But what kind of tactics did Chrysler use to ensure the success of this factory-built drag strip machine? A diet for one. And also some help from their friends at Hearst Performance. Chrysler shipped their stripped-down Superstock cars to Hearst, where Hearst would take on the task of preparing the cars for track duty. Here are some of the features of the Superstock Dart and Superstock Barracuda of 1968. The 426 Hemi. No small blocks here, folks. The conservatively rated 425 horsepower Hemis were equipped with dual 735 CFM Holly 4s atop a lightweight cross ram intake manifold flanked by aluminum heads. Inside were 12.5 to 1 compression slugs and headers on the outside to let the elephant exhale out of glass pack mufflers. Now, 
The factory said 425 horsepower, but realistic numbers put it well over 500, closer to around 535 horsepower. How did they manage to shoehorn the elephant in that small little engine bay? Well, I'll tell you what, a lot of the help came in the form of a BFH. Wait, Chris, what's a BFH? Well, guys, since this is a family-friendly podcast, let's just say that a very large hammer was used to massage the Hemi into place. You got your shift together via a manually shifted torque flight automatic with a 2600 stall converter, or an A833 four-speed with a Hurst shifter mated to a heavy-duty clutch with 486 gears and an 8 and 3 quarter for autos, or a beefy Dana 60 with 488s for the four-speed cars. And with all the power going right to the ground, you needed some room out back, and that's why both of the rear-end housings were narrowed. And all that battery junk, it was all moved to the trunk to help aid in traction when launching these superstock cars into orbit. Speaking of traction, stiffer superstock leaf springs and heavy-duty shocks hung in the back. Stopping power was handled by front disc brakes and rear drums. They rolled on black steel 14-inch wheels and tires on the front and 15s in the rear. The rear wheel openings on the Dart were even modified to comfortably accept larger diameter racing slicks. The Barracudas, they didn't need that modification. Standard seats, those were axed. Both the Darts and Barracudas front seats were replaced by lightweight buckets from an A100, combined with lightweight aluminum seat brackets. As far as the back seat, adios. Soccer moms need not apply. Radio, deleted. Who needs a radio when you have an elephant desperately trying to escape the confines of its fiberglass enclosure? Heater, deleted. Feeling chilly? Let the roar of the Hemi get you feeling all warm. And as for the steel, insulation, gone. Seam sealer, gone. Even the window glass went on a diet. The doors were dipped in acid to thin the sheet metal, and the fenders and hood were ditched in favor of fiberglass replacements, and bumpers on a diet were also added. It should be noted here that the Hemi darts and Barracudas had one of the most menacing hood scoops to ever adorn the hood of a Mopar. I even see the slight inspiration from the Superstock Hemi hood on the new Demon, as did every hardcore Mopar enthusiast when the SRT Demon was released. We all knew that that was a little ode to the old Superstocks of 1968, because before the Demon, they were the factory-built drag cars that ruled the Strip. These cars were all business, and whatever creature comforts didn't help the Superstockers with their mission objective went bye-bye. Even going as far as replacing window cranks with seatbelt straps to lift and lower the door glass. These cars weren't even painted. The Superstockers came off the line primered with black gel coat fenders and a black fiberglass hood. The only parts to shine in relation to the body were the gloss black interiors and the door jams to match. With all the ingredients, the Superstock A bodies were engineered to reach 130 miles an hour and run the quarter in less than 11 seconds an elapsed time that would be shaved considerably when piloted by the best drag racers of that time. The Superstockers were rare in 1968, and even rarer today, and the prices of the ones that sell today reflect that. In my Mopar hunts, I've seen a few for sale, and only the clones fetch under six figures from the ones that I've seen. That's insane, but it's because they're so rare. And the Hemi Dart was considered to be, until recently thanks to the SRT Demon, the fastest factory-built drag car of all time. It actually still holds the crown when considering cars from that original muscle car era. Speaking on value again, back in 1968, you could get a super stock Hemi Dart for 4200 bucks. So basically what you're buying is a 3,000 pound rocket ship for the quarter mile. And while 4,000 was a lot of money back in 68, 
Today, that investment would have been well worth it. And believe it or not, the cars actually did meet the necessary requirements to be considered street legal. The decal inside the cockpit, however, would suggest otherwise. This has been High Performance Heritage, and those were the Hearst Superstock Hemi Darts and Barracudas of 1968. Before I shut this podcast down, I thought I'd share with you guys my two favorite Superstock A-bodies. The first is drag racing legend Dandy Dick Landy's Hemi Dart, and the Hemi Barracuda of the quarter-mile kingpin duo Sox and Martin. Those are my two favorites, both legendary in the game. And, you know, when you think about drag racing from back in the heyday, as some would say, you realize that the personalities back then were larger than life. And I kind of feel like you're starting to see that again. You're starting to see personalities in drag racing again. So I really think that drag racing is currently experiencing a resurgence. And I think it's just going to keep blowing up. And I just don't see the sport of drag racing slowing down anytime soon. That does it, my friends. Another fun episode is in the books. Thanks for joining me on another installment of High Performance Heritage. I hope you enjoyed the show today. And I want to say a quick apology for all of you that were expecting the podcast on Monday with this whole virus thing. And I don't want to get into it. There's enough negativity going around right now. Let's keep it positive. I hope this podcast is helping you escape some of the craziness of everyday life these days. But with all the craziness surrounding this virus and this pandemic, I've been super crazy busy. This is actually my vacation week from work, but we're off to a rough start. So it's Tuesday. The podcast is here. We're doing Mopar Tuesday. <laughs> you know, no no Mopar Monday this week, but you know, things are going to get back on track. And, you know, with the current state of what's going on with all of this, I'm going to try to entertain you guys while you guys are on lockdown. All right. So if we get quarantined, we're stuck inside. Don't worry. You still got talking Mopars. For more information about this podcast or to listen and subscribe to the show, please visit TalkingMopars.com. And don't forget that you can send me your stories, questions, comments, complaints, suggestions, and everything else on your mind to Chris at TalkingMopars.com or leave me a voice message on my voicemail box at 209-28-MOPAR to hear yourself on the show. Before I shut this thing down for the night, I have one favor to ask of you. I would love it if you could rate and review the show if the platform that you're listening to this podcast on has that option to rate and review. Another thing you can do to help grow the show is by voting for Talking Mopars as your favorite podcast by going to podcastmagazine.com slash hot 50 and entering Talking Mopars. Let's get this show to number one. That's it, folks. Until we talk again, I am your host, Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopars. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.